ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. So, uh, just a little um, context. I'm actually on a short vacation at a friend's house in Nantucket. And um, through a series of uninteresting mistakes, almost entirely by yours truly, we didn't really plan on episodes for this week. So, I had an idea of doing a hopefully short, we'll see how it goes, um, it's gotta be a little short because I got plans <laughs> in less than an hour. Um, just a quick meditation on July 4, uh, for those who've been reading me for a while. Um, I took some, I put down some quick notes. So it's, and it's from stuff I've said or written in the past stuff that I reference from time to time. So for those with better things to do, I totally get it for those who take offense at repetition. Um, I get it too, but such as it is. And again, this is the anniversary of the 4th of July, um, 1776. There aren't a lot of um, really new things to be said, just um, old sentiments that maybe can be packaged in new ways um, to help us appreciate the day. The 4th of July is, I mean, let's put it this way. The Declaration of Independence is uh, a very strange document in the course of human history and its meaning has changed a lot since it was first written. Uh, there's some people who don't like this point, um, but you know, it was, was it Jefferson who said that the declaration was an expression of the American mind. And I, I think that's right. Um, but it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons why he said that was that he was borrowing from the language of lots of smaller, um, not smaller in ambition necessarily, but smaller in region or representative body declarations of independence that had been issued. I think it's Pauline Mayer who counted some 90 declarations of independence that had been issued um, prior to the one that we call the Declaration of Independence. This language was, and really these thoughts, were embedded throughout the still nascent republic um, that had not yet uh, formally declared independence. And, um, you know, the, the, the news about the Declaration of Independence wasn't the beginning, it was the end, right? There, other colonies had declared independence before and been put down to one extent or another. An open rebellion against an imperial power is a declaration of independence, even if you don't put it down on parchment. Um, but, you know, the the news was still the Declaration of Independence. Um, what we now consider the really potent stuff was the first paragraph, which was this broad statement of sentiment. Um, and that part was not, that part grew in importance. Over, I'm not saying it wasn't important at the time, but it grew in importance even as the sort of, the particulars of the Declaration of Independence kind of shrunk in the rearview mirror here in Nantucket, I've been here before on the 4th of July, and I suspect in many places around, I know in many places around America, um, people read the Declaration of Independence, and it kind of gets bogged down in the middle. And when you think about some of the atrocities and horrors, not just of the 20th century or the 19th century, but of the last year in terms of like what's happening in Ukraine, 
some of the gripes in the Declaration of Independence don't sound all that world historic. But the context was that this was an English people, um, culturally English. Not everybody here was English. Some were Scots and some were this and some were that. But it was a people that considered themselves to be have the full rights and duties and privileges of English peoples who felt that they were their their rights and principles were being betrayed. Um, yes, and there's hypocrisy involved because of slavery. And um, I guess we can talk about that in a minute. But uh, that's that's another one of these things that's that gets larger in the rearview mirror, um, given how prevalent. Um, slavery still was in many parts of the globe back then, and even in the places where it had slowly been um, eradicated, thanks to the British, uh, it was still of recent memory. So the Declaration of Independence, you know, it was it Margaret Thatcher who said, all other nations, I'm paraphrasing, but all other nations are created by history, and America was created by philosophy. And there are people who, friends of mine, who don't like that because they, they think that sounds a lot, that sounds like an echo of this, uh, this saying you hear a lot, um, America isn't a nation, it's an idea. I think that that, I, that that claim overstates things because I think America is a nation, um, but it also captures something real. And so I kind of think the people who invest too much, either pro or con, in the idea that America is an idea and not a nation, um, get it wrong. It's both and, not either or. And uh, the thing is, is that this was recognized at the time as a big freaking deal. Um, you know, the shot that was heard around the world, um, you know, is metaphorical, um, obviously, given the limitations of the Doppler effect or whatever. Um, but figuratively, it really did, the, the, the shots fired at Lexington Concord um, rang out all across, certainly all across Europe as this huge um, sea change, this huge sort of uh, starter's pistol, pistol for um, the race to a new era. And I want to read a little bit from, I don't know, I assume I have, the rights to do this as a fair use kind of thing. And I want to give all credit where due. Um, one of my absolute favorite essays ever published by the Wall Street Journal, not Wall Street, by the New Republic, and really one of my favorite pieces ever, this piece by Henry Fairley in the New Republic. It was written, I'm trying to find the date, for the double issue of July 18th and 25 in 1988. And Henry Fairley was this old uh, sort of classic English journalist living in the States. Um, I loved his stuff. Um, and he wrote this piece called The Shot Heard Around the World. Uh, subhead is what they thought about our revolution. So I'll just read a little bit from here. Uh, he begins by just sort of chronicling how the actual news of Lexington and Concord didn't actually f literally reach Europe uh, for like five or six weeks when it first crossed the Atlantic. Um, and it just cascaded across newspapers throughout Europe. And I'll pick it up um, where he says, the editors, uh, they, they saw at once the size of the events. In 1775-76, the French Revolution had not sounded its toxin to the peoples of Europe. 
most of them had lived under the rule of a few absolute monarchs. Louis XVI in France, uh, Maria Theresa as dowager empress, and her son Joseph II in Austria, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Holy Roman Empire, Frederick the Great in Prussia, Catherine the Great in Europe, and Christian VII in Denmark. It was the age of the quote-unquote enlightened despots, who generally had the welfare of their subjects at heart, but though they had proclaimed the right of their peoples to be well-governed, they did not acknowledge their right to govern themselves. The only monarch who had sourly learned the ABCs of freedom was paradoxically the one against whom the colonists were rebelling. The English were far freer than any other peoples on the continent, but the English reaction to the news from America is more interesting if we know how the shot was heard on the other side of the English Channel. Maria Theresa had ascended the throne in 1740 at the age of 23. Even then she realized that the old order could not survive and set about instituting a series of effective reforms. Her scarcely less remarkable son, who succeeded his father as co-regent in 1765, produced the most thoughtful exposition of the duties of an enlightened despot. They received the news of the declaration about the same time it reached London, and two weeks before it found its way through the heavy censorship into the daily press in Vienna. Taking a dim view of popular uprisings, Maria Theresa expressed to George III her, quote, hearty desire to see the restoration of obedience and tranquility in every quarter of his dominions. And Joseph told the British ambassador, quote, the cause in which England is engaged is the cause of all sovereigns who have a joint interest in the maintenance of due subordination in all the surrounding monarchies, unquote. The rulers feared that their subjects would see the American action not as a rebellion against the rightful monarch in his own territories, there had been plenty of rebellions against European sovereigns, but as the proclamation of a revolutionary doctrine of universal application, as the Declaration indeed announced it would be. Thus, although the Declaration was at last allowed through the censorship in Vienna, when the Wienerisches Diarium, it's the Diary of Vienna, I suppose, or the Viennese Diary, the next year explained the War of Independence as a clash between two political principles, monarchy and popular sovereignty. Maria Theresa was outraged, even though the paper had covered itself by printing an editorial saying that this view of rebellion was mistaken. Similarly, when the news of Lexington and Concord got through the censors in the St. Petersburgsy Vedmosti, I guess that's the St. Petersburg something paper, the Americans were in deference to the Empress Catherine firmly called rebels. In 1780, when Catherine read the Abbe Reynal's History of Europe's Dominions Overseas and came to his chapter on the American Revolution, she wrote to a friend, the American record is filled with declarations in which there is too little that is reasonable and too much that is unbecoming impertinence. In Belgium, which was then under the rule of Austria, it was clear that the subjects of the enlightened despots might take the American impertinence as an example. From as early as 1766, when the Gazette de Pays Bas, I, I just not even going to try and tell you how to pronounce that, in Brussels, reported the remonstrations of colonial assemblies in America, the Belgian press followed American affairs intently. In four Belgian newspapers and journals, the Maryland Constitution was printed in 1777, the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780. 
some of a collection of the constitutions of all 13 states in 1783, Virginia's Code of Civil and Criminal Laws in 1786, and in the following year, the U.S. Constitution in full. This steady flow of news, including the reports of the war and American victories, could only stir up the middle class in Belgium. They enjoyed neither national independence nor a constitution guaranteeing any basic political rights, while each day the Americans were remaking their political and civil society before the eye of the world. By 1787, a strong movement for independence and a new constitution was growing in Belgium. In the debates that were provoked in Europe, we can see how the shot was heard. We can follow them as they were conducted in the press. Through the 25 or so out-of-the-way historical monographs, memoirs, and so on, that are the main source of this story. And then he goes on to follow how these things were covered in all of these newspapers as this cause for liberty around the world. Fast-forwarding a little bit, it was not only the editors of Denmark and elsewhere, nosy for news, who were excited by the events in America. As early as October 22nd, 1776, A.P. Bernstorff, the great Danish minister for foreign affairs, wrote to a friend, the public here is extremely occupied with the rebels in America, not because they know the cause, but because the mania of independence in reality has infected all of their spirits and the poison has seeped imperceptibly from the works of the philosophes all the way out to the village schools. Those last eight words from such a source tell us something we need to know. So does a firsthand glimpse of the popular mood in, in Copenhagen. The Often Post carried a column, as we would now call it, by one Edmund Balling, describing life in the city. It sounds like a city column by Jimmy Breslin or Mike Royko. Balling dropped into the alehouses, which he described as, quote, our political schools of fencing, those bourgeois art of war listening rooms, where our little politici, during a glass of ale, a pinch of snuff, and a pipe of tobacco, tossed about the issues of the day. At the end of 1776, he found them debating the War of Independence. One said the Americans were rebels and, quote, ought to be beaten over the forehead like bullocks. Another countered that the English ought to be thrashed. A third had no doubt that the English had got something to chew on, and a sausage stuffer called it an accursed war because the rice from South Carolina had become so dear, and what could he now stuff his sausage with in place of meat? On January 12, 1778, Balling told a man entering the alehouse, after reading the news, one guesses, of Burgoyne's defeat, Good evening, gentlemen. Ha, ha, ha. We have the newspapers. Well, what does England say now? Yes, this war will likely make a rather considerable change in Europe. As in Belgium, the impact did not lessen even after America achieved its independence. In 1820, a Danish civil servant, C.F. von Schmitz-Wiseldeck, called the 4th of July this forever memorable day. In our own time, a Danish historian has said that, quote, the Declaration of Independence had a decisive impact on the course of events leading to the attainment in 1849 of Denmark's first democratic constitution. Anyway, I could go on, but the point is, is that people with a yearning for independence and freedom, and not just independence and freedom in terms of wanting to be free for having their local nation free from a foreign power, but independence and freedom internally in terms of political rights, natural rights, democratic government, republican government, people instantaneously or as instantaneously as you can before electronic media saw that that was what was at stake in 1776. The funny thing is, is that there is a debate, and I'm not going to get into the weeds of Harry Jaffa versus his critics, but there is a debate about trying to make 
basically 1788 or 1789, you know, the Constitutional Convention or the ratification or the promulgation as the real founding of America rather than 1776. And it's interesting, there are arguments on this front from both right and left, in part because the radicalism, the philosophical radicalism of the Declaration of Independence, which, you know, conservatives of my stripe think informs the Constitution and the American political order and American culture, that bothers some people. They like the idea that the Constitution was really more of a just sort of a contractual thing, a political bargain, closer to Magna Carta, if that, than to some sort of, you know, more profound statement. And it used to be that it was essentially Confederates or, you know, or or disciples of the Anti-Federalists, if you want to be a little broader. Um, But really it was the Confederates who were the first to sort of really make that argument because the idea that America was founded in 1776 creates a narrative that's really problematic for secession. It also creates a legal and constitutional structure. And this is one of the arguments that Jaffa is famous for in the, insofar as the original Articles of Confederation are much more ironclad in the inability to secede from the Union. They basically talk about how this is an indissoluble Union and once forged, it's permanent, never can be torn asunder. And partly because of the sort of the grubby compromise that went into parts of the Constitutional Convention in uh, 1787 was that it really just only required nine of the original 13 states, uh, colonies or states at that point, uh, to ratify the Constitution. And for the Calhoun types, the Confederate types, they saw that as a better clause, a better legal framework, constitutional framework for exercising the right to secession. But if you believe the nation was founded prior to the Constitution, then you have to look at what gave birth to the nation. And the Declaration of Independence is the thing that people look to. You see a similar sort of parallel argument in some parts of the left with the 1619 Project and the sort of glossing over the Declaration and and its principles and trying to claim that there are some principles in 1619 when when the U.S. brought slaves in. The larger point is, is that this really was the birth of the country. And the person who recognized that more than anybody else or the most important person to recognize that was Abraham Lincoln, right? That's a big part of the Gettysburg Address, which is, you know, so great, so succinct. This is, you know, the Gary Wills argument, but not just Gary Wills, it's lots of people, where Lincoln, in effect, retells the narrative of the United States about America being founded for a proposition. And part of that was to deny the Confederates this this legalistic argument about why they could leave the Union in Lincoln's telling by elevating the Declaration of Independence to this sacrosanct stature. But what Lincoln did was really sort of reconceive what America was about. He writes, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. 
But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, and we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The thing that you often hear at the fourth or on Independence Day is the people who there's a certain quarter that always wants to gripe about Independence Day or poo-poo its significance. You get a lot of grief from other countries. This is usually on Twitter. I wrote about this like last year or the year before from people saying, what do they owe, you know, 
the United States, what, you know, lots of countries got freedom. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm enough of a Whig to think that freedom would have at least emerged for a while someplace if it had not emerged in America. Um, it probably would have emerged in America through the internal pressures and contradictions of a liberty-loving people like the English eventually. But the, the great and glorious thing about the United States and its massive contribution to liberty is that it, I mean, its contribution to liberty is, is manifest in lots of things and not just in the revolutionary era. You know, World War II helped a lot and a lot of things in between. But one of the, the single best things that America did because Americans, Americans are weird, right? I mean, we are, we like texts. We like writing things out. We like explaining stuff. We like explaining our principles in, in writing and then holding to them. And I think that the, the simple writing is forgotten. And you know, the importance that, that writing has, the texts have, not just in this context, but in all contexts, is kind of, it's really easy to forget. But, you know, writing is kind of like magic. There's this great, I always love this scene in Game of Thrones where uh, Sam, Tarly, you don't need to know the characters, but this, this nerdy chubby guy knows all these things about how to do things, navigate things, how to get inside of a, a, of a building because he knows where the entrance, the secret entrance is, all these kinds of things. And this illiterate woman that he is you know, hooked up with is says, you know, you know, all of that just from a bunch of scratches on a piece of paper. And he says, yeah. And he says, and she says, you're like a wizard. Um, there's real wizardry in writing. Um, it is this, you know, when you compare it to what came before, it is almost this, has this magical quality because it, um, it can take information and concepts and wisdom that is ancient and keep it fresh and live um, centuries later. And, you know, again, that seems totally normal and natural to us, but it's not normal and it's not natural. Uh, you know, the best before writing, the, the best way to keep any knowledge alive was basically to put it in song and teach people, you know, long songs that, you know, they would memorize from when they were young. And, um, you know, that's sort of in many ways the biggest, most concrete, not the biggest and most concrete, but the most underappreciated aspect of the Magna Carta is it created a, essentially, you know, Magna Carta is a really weird document with all sorts of weird stuff in it. And there are like three versions because um, they kept rewriting it. And it's kind of a mess internally. But the thing that gave it lasting power was that it was written down. It created a precedent that people had to turn back to. And that's one of the glorious things about the Declaration of Independence and of the U.S. Constitution is that because it's written down one way, you need arguments to defeat the language as written. One of the great, great follies of politics and philosophy and culture since the dawn of uh, modernity, if not since the dawn of time, is this idea that simply due to technological change, human nature changes. Um, and obviously this is something I talk about at great length in my book, but you know, this is the folly of, of almost every generation to say, you know, what did, you know, what did they know about jet planes or, you know, artificial intelligence or 
uh, nuclear bombs, you know, all that stuff is antiquated and has no relevance um, to today. We need modern technology, modern political technology to match our other technology. And this misses the point entirely. The declaration was this profound statement about permanent principles and the constitution is, you know, so the declaration is, as some people like to say, was the mission statement and the constitution is the bylaws. Um, and you can't really understand the context of the constitution without understanding the, the, the mission statement. Both of those were written towards immutable permanent things by which I mean human nature. Human nature has no history, right? We don't become better humans because we have better toys and gadgets. The only way we become better humans is by getting better philosophy or better culture. And I believe in better philosophy and better culture. You know, in, a, in, in America today or Canada or the UK or wherever, murder and bigotry and rape and a dozen other horrible things are less tolerated and less accepted than they were, pick your time frame, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 250 years ago, doesn't really matter. That's to the good, but, but that's not written in our hearts, right? That's not written in our DNA. That's what Reagan is getting at when he says every generation, we have to fight for liberty anew because you don't inherit a love of liberty when you're born. It's got to be taught to you. And that's why having stuff written down is really, really important. And that's why having rules that take account of human nature, regardless of how much culture or technology changes, is so important. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, the, the ideas running through the Federalist Papers that, you know, exp that are sort of the liner notes of the Constitution to complete, keep mangling metaphors, they're about ambition and about how to check either check ambition or channel ambition in positive ways, how to channel passions in positive ways. Uh, this is the point that Irving Kristol makes in the American Revolution as a successful revolution. Irving's point is that the American Revolution took human nature into account. The French Revolution did not take human nature into account. The Bolshevik Revolution did not take human nature into account. Those revolutions and others like it worked on the premise that basically social science or science enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, had given us sufficiently new insights and understandings into how humans work that our natural wiring could just simply be erased and that you could assume citizens would have new human natures. Weirdly, if you think about, I haven't really thought about this before, but if you think about revolutions that take place earlier than the American Revolution, or at least a lot earlier than the American Revolution, a huge number of principles involved, right? I mean, the basic principles, I suppose, the principle of independence is there. Some subjugated people, you know, the, the Israelites rebelled against the Roman Empire quite a bit, um, but they were one of the few subjugated nationalities that did. The principle there was just independence. It wasn't some larger thing. It wasn't that the, it wasn't a fight for Israelis to live in a democratic republic. It was the fight for the Israelis to live as Israelis, as Hebrews. And most other rebellions were just simply assertions that local leaders should be in charge of their own stuff, but there was no greater, larger um, statements about, about universal human rights or innate equality or any of these kinds of things. And so it's a very weird thing to have this sort of mix of acknowledgement of human nature 
with incredibly high principle. And then the great and glorious thing is it's all written down. And so it becomes this touchstone that you can call back to, this argument that is perpetually fresh if you have goodwill to engage with it. And I, you know, I should talk about slavery for just a second here. I, I'm a, kind of a broken record on this. Slavery was evil. Slavery was, was uniquely hypocritical in the United States, but not uniquely evil, right? And you can be, the, people often confuse hypocrisy for the sin, it's for, some under, for a different underlying sin. Um, if, I, if I extol and celebrate murder and I murder someone, I'm still a really bad guy, right? If I extol, if I, if I denounce and condemn murder and I murder someone, I'm a really bad guy for murdering someone, but I'm also a hypocrite. And the hypocrisy of American slavery was, it comes from the incongruity between our high-minded principles and the reality of the institution. Like, I, I don't like critical race theory and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think it should be in schools, but I also don't think that critical race theory is the same thing as history. And there are people out there who want to say that we shouldn't teach the history of slavery in this country, which is Looney Tunes, because you cannot teach what is great about this country unless you teach about the bad things it's did and how we learned lessons from it and how we overcame it. And, you know, this is an old observation from, I think the first person to really start hammering it was Tom Sowell, but I'm sure there are people 10, you know, three generations earlier who did as well. But, you know, the, the shocking thing about, you know, American slavery was not that we had it, but that we ended it. The shocking thing about the English was not that they had slavery, but that they ended it before we did. There was something particular about English culture that said slavery was gross and that culture existed in America at the time of the founding, um, but it did, it was it did not exist sufficiently in the South. And as part of this compromise to get the Constitution ratified, uh, the founders had to countenance slavery. And you know this is one of these things that happens so much in popular culture and popular debate, where people invoke the three fifths clause, which says that um, three fifths of the slave populations in Southern states will be counted for the purposes of representation, right? So it's basically like when you're drawing up, you know, district sizes in Congress, you won't count slaves as a whole person. You'll count them as three-fifths of a person. And people take this, which was terrible. It was terrible that it was in the Constitution. But the way people, particularly people who don't really understand why it was there, argue about it is that they, you know, the people who most condemn the three-fifths clause often inadvertently take the, the, the slaveholder's side because the reality is, is that it was the abolitionists, it was the anti-slavery states that wanted slaves counted as zero, and it was the slave states that wanted slaves counted as, as whole people for the purposes of representation. That's because it would give them more power in Congress and let them keep slavery around. And so while the, the top line is still grotesque that it had to happen, but the three-fifths clause is an acknowledgement of this terrible tension at the time of the founding that the abolitionists could not completely win victory over, and neither could the slaves, which, you know, 
foreshadowed, you know, the, the very conflicts that led to the Civil War and led Abraham Lincoln to uh, say, hey, look, we got to go back to basics and start with the Declaration and not with the Constitution. One of the reasons why, you know, you got to teach about slavery is that it was this, this fundamental contradiction that we call hypocrisy, but is actually a deeper and more philosophical thing, had to be resolved. It had to be worked out because it was so incongruous with the principles of the founding. And people like, you know, I got to say, you know, Barack Obama, this was one of the places where I think he was really good at talking about this, you know, is that basically American principles as enunciated first in the Declaration of Independence were basically a time bomb against slavery that eventually had to go off. Now, did it have to go off in the form of the Civil War? That's a contrafactual thing. You know, there were arguments about other ways you could have ended slavery. And obviously, I think that would have been better. But the point remains is that, you know, you got to teach about slavery because what the, the, what slavery, the, the, our episode with slavery and with Jim Crow teaches people what the best version of America is. And that's what Martin Luther King was appealing to when he gave his, you know, I have a dream speech. He echoes in front of the Lincoln Memorial. He echoes Lincoln's argument. He does a callback to it saying, you know, four score, you know, seven years ago, you know, our forefathers, blah, 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 blah. And he says, they delivered a promissory note and we are here to collect it because King's argument, much like Lincoln's, was that inherent to the whole idea of the Declaration of Independence was the aspiration to being, to living up to our ideals. And that's what drives me crazy about people who want to, you know, dunk on the American founding and dunk on the Declaration of Independence and talk about its hypocrisy is they're basically taking sledgehammers to the soapbox that they're standing on because it was those principles that led us to realize the fullness of the concept of what it means to be American and what it means to live up to these ideas that we are all endowed by our creator. You know, if you want to take that stuff away, you know, I'm open to those arguments. Other countries don't have the founding documents that we have. They were all, as I was trying to get at earlier, we're all heavily influenced by, by what we did and the documents that we have. But it's sort of like these Supreme Court fights that we're having right now. If your theory of government is that the, just, the government should have the power without obstruction to do the things that you think is right or you think are right, right? That it's just about power and it's outrageous that the Supreme Court got to do stuff that I don't like. So therefore, the Supreme Court is bad. What is your limiting principle? What is your principle for where government derives its authority? What is your answer to strict majoritarians who just simply say 50 plus 1% of the people should have their way. Because if that's your argument, then your argument is essentially might makes right. And the whole philosophical construct of the, of the declaration of the founding of the constitution is that majorities are good and important, but they're not everything. And that the, you need certain rules and mechanisms built around certain principles that say government can only do so much to harm or uh, erase the rights of minorities or of individuals. And so much of the sort of horseshoe theory, new right, old left, their arguments which are founded in sort of, you know, Wilsonian notions of pragmatism, you know, and sort of Darwinian evolution, this idea that somehow because we have better technology, therefore 
we don't need to rely on these eternal truths anymore. We can we can update the software on the fly. They basically, when you strip them of everything, just boil down to assertions of power. And it's, it's a form of power worship that says, my team should be in power and it should get to do what it wants to do. And mechanistic, procedural, doctrinal impositions that make it more difficult for us to work our will are inherently illegitimate. And it's amazing how many times antagonists on both the left and the right these days, invoke majoritarianism as their rationale when they don't have a majority on their side. You know, all the people who are saying this is, you know, like the Supreme Court did something outrageous in the affirmative action case and it's undermining democracy. It's question begging. They just assume that majorities agree with them. And similarly, you know, a lot of this stuff I've been writing about of late, you know, with Patrick Deneen and these guys, they just assert that the majority of the true nation and the, the, the real masses of the people are, are with them. And so, therefore, they shouldn't have to make arguments or compromises or play by the rules because the rules are limiting the popular will. And the fact is, is that, is very, and, and don't give me polls, you can play all sorts of games with polls. And who gives a rat's ass about polls at the end of the day when you're just asking a small sample of people to say things in a way that sounds like it's the right way to say it? Madison, James Madison, again, who was a much better, my standard joke is, you know, Hamilton was a much better rapper, but a worse philosopher. Madison understood that the only true and legitimate way to test the will of the people is to hold elections, lots and lots and lots of elections. And that's what he built into the system, where at every level of government, from, from small towns to county, to state, to federal, this branch and that branch, you have elections all the time because it forces the people to take account of what is going on in the real world and actually make a choice. And it's this feedback mechanism that is real and it holds people to account and it also holds people, it, 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 it punishes, and I don't mean punishes like 40 lashes, I mean it holds people to account for when sometimes people go too far with their political philosophy. You could vote in the entire, you can vote in super majorities in the House and the Senate of hardcore left-wingers or hardcore right-wingers or populists of the left or populists of the right, and you can let them do what they want to do according to the rules. And it may just turn out that over time, people are like, yeah, we've gone too far that way. Let's go another way. There was this weird assumption of sort of assuming that because you allegedly have a majority on your side in the moment, that you will have the majority on your side forevermore. And so therefore, mucking about and wasting time with checks and balances and periodic election, periodic and regular elections to take account of whether or not maybe power has gone to some people's heads. Maybe some people's ideas sounded great on paper, but now we need some people in there to sort of fix the problems or the unintended consequences or the overreach or the corruption that led to being in power for too long. That's how you have an actual republic, an actual democracy. Part of doing that means having a system of rules, of liberal rules. I mean, classically liberal rules, of constitutional rules that give the people the opportunity to change course or change leadership or change policies when they see fit. The whole idea of simply saying, no, 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 we have to make the rules 
fit what we want right now forever is an incredible form of arrogance and an incredible form of reactionary thought. When, when your arguments end up devolving just simply into an argument that my team should have power and get what it wants, gets what it wants forever, you're going backwards, not forwards. And so I'm going to close with Calvin Coolidge, praise be upon him. He, he gave arguably the third greatest statement on the Declaration of Independence after Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. And I will say sort of philosophically, I, I, would, I would bump up Coolidge's grade because he actually lays out an argument more completely. I just think in terms of importance and eloquence and brevity, Lincoln wins. Martin Luther King comes in second, even though his wasn't nearly as brief because of it just its historic and political import. And it's moral import. But in terms of an actual statement of the philosophical grounding, I, I give it to Coolidge. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. Wherever I pick up, I feel like I'm skipping parts that I should raise. I'll just start from here. Placing every man on a plane where he acknowledged no superiors, where no one possessed any right to rule over him, he must inevitably choose his own rules through a system of self-government. This was their theory of democracy. In those days, such doctrines would scarcely have been permitted to flourish and spread in any other country. This was the purpose which the fathers cherished, in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunity to put them into action. Whole congregations with their pastors had migrated to the colonies. These great truths were in the air that our people breathed. Whatever else we may say of it, the Declaration of Independence was profoundly American. If this apprehension of the facts be correct, and the documentary evidence would appear to verify it, then certain conclusions are bound to follow. A spring will cease to flow if its source be dried up. A tree will wither if its roots be destroyed. In its main features, the Declaration of Independence is a great spiritual document. It is a declaration not of material, but of spiritual conceptions. Equality, liberty, popular sovereignty, the rights of man. These are not elements which we can see and touch. They are ideals. They have their source and their roots in the religious convictions. They belong to the unseen world. Unless the faith of the American people in these religious convictions is to endure, the principles of our declaration will perish. We cannot continue to enjoy the result if we neglect and abandon the cause. We are too prone to overlook another conclusion. Governments do not make ideals, but ideals make governments. This is both historically and logically true. Of course, the government can help to sustain ideals and can create institutions through which they can be better observed. But their source, by their very nature, is in the people. The people have to bear their own responsibilities. There is no method by which that burden can be shifted to the government. It is not the enactment, but the observance of laws that creates the character of a nation. And this is my favorite part, as longtime readers know. About the Declaration, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. It is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we've had new thoughts and new experiences which have given us great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. 
But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If the governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward, toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than those of the revolutionary fathers. In the development of its institutions, America can fairly claim that it has remained true to the principles which were declared 150 years ago. In all the essentials, we have achieved an equality which was never possessed by any other people. Even in the less important matter of material possessions, we have secured a wider and wider distribution of wealth. The, great, the rights of the individual are held secure and protected by con constitutional guarantees, which even the government itself is bound not to violate. All right, I can keep going, but you get the point. And this is, this is, you know, this is the rock, this is, this is the rock I stand on. This is the, the hill I'll die on. Um, I think that all of the arguments from left and right against the constitution, against our, 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 our liberal institutions, our liberal order, against procedural liberalism, against constitutionalism are all fundamentally reactionary. You can come up with all sorts of bells and whistles and doodads and, and modern sounding new phrases to make them sound more modern. But all that is, is sort of putting lipstick on a pig of really old ideas. And you can see this, if you go back and you read the progressives, you know, there's this great essay I don't have it in front of me where Herbert Crowley is sort of, you know, the founding intellectual of the progressives, founder of the new Republic. You know, he has this whole big thing where he talks about lady justice, you know, I was at Artemis or Justia, you know, who's blind, you know, and has the scales and all of that. He says, this is this antiquated notion and we no longer in the modern era, we need to get rid of it. And he says a better metaphor for what justice is, is this. And then he describes a lady justice who has like a microscope for one eye and a telescope for another eye and uses slide rules all sorts of technology to get really granular on what constitutes justice and how to fine tune society and all these kinds of things. And it reads really antiquated now because the technology he's describing is, is really antiquated, but you strip it of all of that junk. And he's basically just saying, we need sort of a priestly class of elites who know right that are wiser than the rest of us who can decide how other people should live to be able to pick winners in the market, pick winners among races and classes, you know, this sort of picking winners among races and classes. You can find right-wing versions of it all over the place, right? You call, if we don't call it white supremacy or racism or institutional racism or Nazism or fascism, you can find, you know, are all sorts of examples of it. And you can find all sorts of left-wing examples of it in, in communism and Bolshevism and, and, and all the rest. It's, it's still the basic principle, which is that 
there is no principle other than the idea that my team should be in charge and that we know what's best or just for everybody else. And any rules that hold us back are on their face illegitimate. And the Declaration of Independence is the thing, is this bulwark against all of those arguments. It's the starting of the argument. I shouldn't say the starting of the argument. You can go back to Jesus and you can find stuff in the Bible that begins this argument or, you know, or back to Moses. The argument becomes manifest with the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution. And it's this thing that we should be eternally grateful for. And because we're grateful for it, we should try really hard to protect it. I just wrote my column about how if you want to cancel student loan debt, go ahead. You can. Just do it in accordance with the Constitution. Just do it according to the rules. Democracy allows countries to make mistakes. I'm against the canceling of student debt, but if you can get enough votes in Congress and enough voters to send those votes to Congress and you want to do something stupid and, and regressive, go ahead and do it. But don't tell me that we have a president who has unilateral authority to rule like a monarch and just forgive the debts of favored classes of people because it suits his purposes. That is contrary to what the country is about. And it says just as contrary to what the country is about as, as a lot of the stuff that Donald Trump did about how to pay for his wall and all the rest. You got to play by the rules. And one of the great things about playing by the rules is the rules require buy-in from the American people. You have to go to those elections. You don't go to polls. You don't, you don't do focus groups and say, okay, well, this will play with, well with people because they like the ends. We can skip all the messy and complicated and difficult means. We can just give people what they want. If you do it by the rules, you actually have to make people vote for stuff and debate stuff and deal with the consequences of pissing off constituencies that don't want it and maybe come up with compromises that satisfy more people and actually form better policy. But we live in a country now where we think that consulting polls and focus groups might as well be sort of checking with the oracle or the augers to figure out what the, the, you know, the divine popular will is. The truth is the American people don't know what the popular will is. They know what their own will is to one extent or another. But the more you actually have debates and elections at the local and national and state level where people have arguments and stakeholders have to sort of deal with each other, the more concrete popular will is and the more legitimate the final product is. When you oppose everything from above like a king, you, you reinforce the idea that we don't live by the consent of the governed with buy-in from the governed. And so we become subjects rather than citizens. And the only reason I'm dwelling on that is because, one, I just wrote about it, it's in my head. But two, it's just to demonstrate that these principles are live issues right now. And they'll be live issues, relevant issues Every day, every year, every generation going forward. And you can be left-wing or you can be right-wing and still think that the ideas of the American founding are worth um, keeping in our hearts and keeping as live propositions for this country. And if it makes things harder for your team to get the wins that it wants, so be it. All I can say to you is that if you do it the right way, 
they're more likely to be lasting victories than if you do it the wrong way. Because when you do it the wrong way, by fiat, by executive order, you don't have buy-in from the people that you piss off and you don't have benefit of law. You don't have benefit of the legislative process or any of that. And that is counterproductive for your own side as well because it, it only arouses the desire to get rid of your victories as quickly as possible when they are all constructed on a foundation of sand. And so take a moment just to sort of think about how these things are alive and well and real in our lives today. This is not simply academic history. It is the, the sort of central access point about how a self-governing people approaches political questions in every generation. And as long as America endures, it will continue to be. So thanks for indulging me. I know this was sort of slapdash. Um, and have a wonderful fourth. And go Joey Chestnut. And I'll talk to you later.